1999, the Wachowskis and star Keanu Reeves gave the world a sci-fi thriller that questioned everything we thought we knew about our world. In 2021, we try a high-end sourced whiskey finished in sherry casks. The film is The Matrix. The whiskey is Joseph Magnus. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1999 sci-fi action classic, The Matrix. Bob, I just love this movie. (laughs) Like, I saw it. I didn't see it as like a young, because it came out when I was like nine. I probably saw it when I was like 15 or 16. So like, you know, like 2005, 2006 area, Mm -hmm. a little while after it came out. And I remember even then the technological leaps from 1999 to 2005 were like massive enough that, you know, we had razor cell phones at that point. (laughs) The, The phones in the Matrix felt old even five years later. And so I remember as a kid being like, oh, wow, this is a really cool movie, but like it's pretty dated. And now as like, you know, it's it's 22 years old now. I looked back and it has just aged like a fine wine. Yeah. I just think this movie is so spectacular. Yeah, Brad, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think the first thing we can say is that it holds up really, really well. And that's something that I feel like the sci-fi genre and, you know, kind of the comedy genre as well, that. It, it can get dated really easily. You know, you go back and watch mm. James Cameron's original Terminator movie, which is in terms of like uh, sci-fi plotting and narrative and the idea of time travel. It's a huge leap forward for sci-fi cinema, but they were still using essentially stop motion animation for the Terminator at the end of that movie. And it looks incredibly dated. And I would say, Brad, aside from maybe one or two effects that I don't think hold up super well, Even the computer graphics in this movie still look really, really great. Yeah. I mean, we're coming off the uh, Harry Potter movies. And I remember when we were talking about the first Harry Potter and the second Harry Potter, like the CGI in those movies in 99. I mean, granted, there's not a ton of CGI in the Matrix, which I think is a good thing. But even the ones that there are, I'm like, that looks pretty daggone good considering some of the stuff from 2002, 2003 was barely any better, if not a little bit worse. Well, I think, honestly, some of the things that make this movie stand out in terms of the computer graphics are that they're used pretty sparingly. I mean, like, there's a lot of green screening going on in this movie and stuff like that, and and, and some of, like, the bullet sequences are, are kind of... You can tell that there's some computer stuff going on there, but, like, when you get to the sequels, The Matrix Reloaded, when you have Neo fighting whatever it is, like, 50 Agent Smiths, and you go back and watch that sequence now, it's like, oh, they look like rubber. Like, it looks like, you know, when Legolas is jumping off of the elephant in Return of the King, and you're like, <laughs> oh, okay, this is very clearly early 2000 CGI. And I think that that not, you know, leaning too heavily or relying too much on the computer graphics is what makes them still stand out. It's kind of like the Jurassic Park school of thought. Use practical stuff when you can and try to make the CGI as seamless as possible, and it won't get dated after 30 years. 
Yeah, I mean, especially with something like Jurassic Park, the beauty of it is that it's, like you said, it's used so sparingly that it's not enough to jar you out of the film experience, right? And and granted, it's done so well back then that you're like, oh, like this, it doesn't jar me out because it's done so well. But even for a 2021 mindset, like the only scene I can really think of where I'm like, oh, that's pretty obvious CGI is when they set off the bomb in like the, the building and it like blasts the elevator door out of the lobby. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, like that's one of the few times where I was like, oh yeah, that's CGI. But you know what? One little CGI explosion. I'm down with it. Good job, Wachowskis. Like, that's fine. And, and the other thing about this movie that, that stands up so well, in my opinion, is that they based the entire movie around this, like, pretty philosophical question. What if this world isn't all that we think it is? And, like, that is a pretty fundamental human question, whether you consider it philosophical or religious. Like, there seems to be something in the human spirit that looks around and asks the question, like, well, is there more than just this? Mm. And, you know, this movie deals with that question, and it gives a fascinating, horrifying, sci-fi type answer that it's just captivating and engaging. And even in 2021... I think the question is probably even more valid than it was in 99. And so the Matrix just, in my mind, remains a great examining of that question. Brad, if you had to say one way or the other, would you consider this first and foremost a sci-fi movie or an action movie? Ooh, that's I've thought that's about a good question. I think, I think I would say sci-fi. Yeah, I think I would too. Yeah. And I think it's because, like, primarily, I think this movie is more focused on the philosophical and the world building and the mythology building. And the action sequences are really well done. But I don't think that the movie's, like, main goal is to deliver great action. I think it's to deliver an interesting sci-fi story. I think that's kind of where the sequels go off the rails a little bit, is that now that they've established the world, they've established the mythology and the rules of this world, they can just lean really heavily into the action sequences. And so they kind of lose a little bit of weight that this movie, I think, really has. And I think that's why I'd call this one a sci-fi more than an action movie. Brad, I, I have a lot of questions for you because I know you, you're kind of the resident sci-fi guy here on Film and Whiskey. I really want to pick your brain on this movie. But before we go any further, it's time for Brad Explains. This is America's favorite segment where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. We know that this is not Brad's first time seeing The Matrix. I'm really excited to hear you try to break this down in one minute, Brad. As you know, you have a 60-second limit this season on Brad Explains. Can you explain the plot of this movie in less than one minute? The Matrix is a film about a alternate future where humanity created artificial intelligence and got into a war against machines, which they ultimately lost. Um, They tried to nuke the skies to destroy the machine's solar power. But in the end, the machines started harvesting humans for batteries, basically, for energy. And so they created this alternate reality called the Matrix, where they are imitating a world and the humans living within that world with their minds are just completely duped by the machines so that they can be batteries for their power. Uh, And the story is about how a man named Morpheus wakes up a person named Neo and tells him that he is the one who will destroy the machines, who will end this long-term war against them. 
Um, and it just follows their adventures in trying to help Neo believe in himself as the one. Boom. Nicely done, sir. Nailed it. Yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot more to it. Like with any great sci-fi or mythology building movie, you learn about the role of the the malevolent kind of software in the Matrix that is hunting them down. Watching this movie this time, I think maybe one of the first places I want to go is trying to establish this movie like historically. So it's 1999, which we know ends up being a historically great movie year. This is already our fourth movie that we've done from the year 1999, Brad. We did American Beauty, we did The Sixth Sense, and we've done Fight Club. And now we've got The Matrix. Talk about a one, two, three, four punch <laughs> that we've got. And honestly, we could keep going with movies from this year. And in a lot of ways, I think this movie might have had the biggest cultural impact. For some reason, I mean, this movie came out and Warner Brothers didn't really know how to position it. And it came out and it got, you know, really good reviews and, and pretty good box office. And then all of a sudden it took off and it took off because of word of mouth. People were seeing this movie and it was like nothing they'd seen before. It really does kind of remind me in a lot of ways of the Terminator, just in terms of how it makes you think about the world. It makes you think about, you know, Terminator makes you think about time travel. This one makes you think about the idea of like, what if we're living in a computer simulation? People had not really asked these questions before. And it was asked in a big budget Hollywood movie that delivered the goods in terms of entertainment value. And so this movie just kind of skyrocketed at the box office. Brad, you know, we're both over 30 now at this point. So this movie came out when I was still a little young to go to the theater and see it. But I remember specifically talking to people at school that were like, my parents don't let me see R-rated movies, but they let me watch The Matrix. And I remember hearing that narrative five or six times from different people that this was like their first rated R movie that their parents would let them see. It almost hits like what we would call a four quadrant movie, which is like, you know, men, women, young people, old people. Everybody seemed to enjoy this movie and it it's kind of crazy because it's a really high concept sci-fi movie where people are wearing leather and like everything has a green filter over it. It doesn't seem like the kind of movie that would take off. And yet it really, really took hold, you know, at the end of the century. Like if I just told you different, I, I almost want to call them like set pieces about the movie or like different like niches that the movie fills. You would tell me that this is just some crappy indie movie, right? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, like people are running in slow motion and dodging bullets. There's a green filter over pretty much every scene. It's trying to be hyper-realistic. It's sci-fi. It's a little bit of horror. Like, if I told you all of those things, you would just go, oh, yeah, it's probably some low budget, maybe a slasher, maybe some sort of, like, you know, horror-type sci-fi film. Probably not, like, a blockbuster. And yet, when you put all these pieces together, and, and you know what? Even on top of all that, I'll just go ahead and say it. Not great acting. No. <laughs> like, not so much. Like, if I told you all of those things, you would just say, yep, low budget, indie, crappy, slasher film. You know, I, you know I'll watch it for some laughs maybe, but that's it. But for some reason, this was like a convalescence of just perfection. And I, I don't know all fully why, but I kind of want to figure it out while we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I do, too. And I guess another way that I think we should kind of frame this movie is the things that influenced it and the things that it then influenced, because everything that's come out since The Matrix has been influenced by The Matrix in one way or another, just from the way action scenes are filmed to, you know, as we were watching it, I was like, oh, this 
there's shades of inception all over this, right? Like the idea that the world that you're living in is not real and that it is a dream that you have to overcome with your mind, you know, and understand your surroundings. And I was like, oh, man, like Christopher Nolan owes a debt of gratitude to the Wachowskis here. But then also in the course of watching the movie, you see certain things happen on screen, like when Agent Smith is taking over people's bodies and you go, oh, that is obviously a throwback to Terminator 2 earlier in the decade where you've got like the T-2000 that's doing that cool liquid shape-shifting thing. So it's really interesting to see how even though this movie became such a huge influence on other things, you could really easily see what influenced the Wachowskis here too. Oh, 100%. I, I think that if there's any film genre that really... I don't know. You can see it build upon itself. It really is sci-fi in like a linear like, way, in a very linear way. And I, the crazy thing that people will always point out is how sci-fi does not only build into other sci-fi movies, but out of all the genre of media, because I'll, I'll include TV in here. I feel like sci-fi is the only one that actually has like legitimate repercussions in the real world where people are like, they see this crazy stuff that th people think up of in a sci-fi movie or TV show. And it makes them think, huh, I wonder if we could make that happen in real life. You never see like a drama romance where like some dudes cheating on somebody and go, Oh, I wonder if we could, you know, create cheating in the real world. <laughs> like, no, that like happens all the time. But in sci-fi, they're literally coming up with new stuff and people in the real world, scientists grow up watching this stuff and they go, man, I wonder if I could make the stuff I saw on Star Trek as a kid or on in the Matrix. And it, it's fascinating to me that I really do believe that sci-fi has an impact on the real world. Oh, for sure. This. This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. And going back to what you were saying earlier about like what makes this movie great, why does it work so perfectly, how do all these things kind of add up to more than the sum of their parts, I think that gets us back to the idea of how to read this movie. And I was texting you last night and I said, the thing that I love about The Matrix is that it works perfectly if you take it super seriously. Like if you watch it on face value and you are like into it and you're engaging with the ideas and you're and you're thinking, wow, this is a very serious movie and I want to engage with the themes, it works great. It also works really great if you don't believe in any of it and you go into it thinking, wow, this is a really campy, over-the-top movie where a bunch of people in leather run around and shoot guns at each other and spout philosophical nonsense you know, about the world being a computer simulation and the bad acting plays into that. It's really interesting, Brad. I don't know of a movie that works really well if you take it seriously and also works really well if you hate everything that's going on. I feel like you could hate watch this movie and be just as entertained as if you took it incredibly seriously. Yeah, it's a good, good movie and a good, bad movie. Like, you're right, Bob. I literally cannot think of another film 
that fits that genre of being good at being good and bad at, and good at being bad. I like, like it's just it's just wild to me. And I don't think that it's intentionally campy either. But it it definitely the final product. You know, like when you watch, take for example, you know Hugo Weaving's performance here as Agent Smith. It is so gloriously over the top, so gloriously hammy that, you know, we can only envision him in the part. But I'm thinking like, oh, this would be a great part 10 years earlier for like Tim Curry to come in and like do a little mustache twirl and chew scenery. And and yet there's something about it that because this entire concept, the whole sci fi concept is so over the top, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, the computer simulation would behave like that. And so it really works for what the movie's trying to do, but it also really works if you just want to go in and watch a really hammy performance. Dude, I I just freaking love Hugo Weaving in this movie. Like, this is a perfect example of when going over the top just freaking works. His performance, the way he continually said, like the way he says Mr. Anderson over and over and just like won't give it up, he's just, just Mr. Anderson. And it's just so over the top and so cheesy, enough to the point where I texted my buddy whose last name is Anderson and just told him, I was like, hey, man, I just watched The Matrix. I will be calling you Mr. Anderson for the next four weeks. Yeah. Like it's like it's just happening. Just There's nothing up. you can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> The great thing about Hugo Weaving, too, you know, obviously he is not an American actor and his accent is not really an American accent. It, you oh, know, it's, no, it's a not foreign, at all. It, it's like, a you know, an overseas person's idea of how Americans sound. So it's really exaggerated. But on top of that, if you've seen Hugo Weaving in any other roles, he over enunciates in any dialect or in any accent. So when you watch yeah. him in Lord of the Rings and he's talking, you know, at the Council of Elrond and he goes, we must face the fiery pits of Mordor. And like he rolls his <laughs> R's and stuff. He does exactly that kind of thing here, but he's doing it in this weird kind of Midwestern American Mr. Anderson. And it is, <laughs> I just, I love it so much. And I, you know, I, I hope that people don't think that I am going to come out on the side of like, this is a bad movie. It's a campy movie, but I enjoy it. No, I actually really enjoy this movie at face value, but I think the over the topness of it is what makes it such a great rewatchable movie. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to come back to something I've said in the past, which is I'm going to use the word sincerity. Like uh, one of the things that I love most is when an actor comes across as just simply sincere and for all of the bad acting that goes into this. And I actually wouldn't say that Hugo Weaving is a bad actor here or, or that his performance is bad. I think that he is probably the best actor of the group, him and maybe Lawrence Fishburne. But like Keanu and Carrie Ann Moss, I just don't think they're very good actors, but in this movie, they take the script so sincerely and they portray it in a manner that they believe it like deep at the core of their soul mm -hmm. that it makes me believe in this world. It makes me believe in this almost unique like genre that the Wachowskis have crafted. And I just I just can't get over it, man. I I, <laughs> I started by saying this. I'll say it right here in the middle and I'll say it at the end. I just love this movie, Bob. All right, so I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit, Brad, especially as the Star Wars fan that you are, because I saw a lot of parallels between this movie and Star Wars, just in the way that they build out the universe. 
And I just want your opinion on this because I'm trying to put together a theory of why both of those movies work so well. You know, you know, we're talking about A New Hope and The Matrix. Yeah. And I think it's that they strike a balance. They really perfectly find a balance between having a really, really simplistic storyline or like character arc, but then making the details be in building out the world around the characters. Does that make sense? If you if you think about A New Hope, it really is just like boy wants to escape situation boy gets to escape situation boy becomes hero it is it is very you know if, if you want to simplify it to that extent and this one's very similar it's it's in a lot of ways it's the hero's journey sketched out again and it has these kind of ridiculously vague philosophical underpinnings you are the one well what the hell's the one well you're it well what if i'm not but you are so that's it's just kind of you can read into the philosophy of this movie anything that you want and i've seen like tons of interpretations you know with the wachowskis taking uh the kind of life journey that they have now i've seen a lot of interpretations of the matrix that deals with is this a movie about being transgender i've seen on the other the other side of things like evangelical Christian readings of the matrix because it's so vague, you can just kind of import whatever philosophy you want onto the movie. And I think that honestly, that's what makes the movie so good because the things that you actually end up thinking about are the details that they round out the movie with the idea of what if the world is a computer simulation? Okay. Well, if it's a computer simulation, how do we visually show that your brain is being tricked into believing that it's a computer simulation? And they really do a great job with rounding out the world around Neo and the others in this movie. I think similarly to what Lucas did in star Wars, you know, creating the idea of Darth Vader and, what do stormtroopers look like and what is the the galactic empire really about? And, you know, it almost distracts you from the simplicity of the overall story because it makes the world so intriguing and inviting. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work. When you go to church, when you pay your taxes, it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Well, I think that what's so masterfully done with this story is that the the first premise of the movie, the world is not as it seems, almost implies like when you when you flesh that out, it almost takes the specialness out of the world, right? Like you think that you live in 1999 and that we're at the peak of, you know, human civilization and but the reality is you're nothing special. You're literally just a battery for some machines that control your life. Right. Mm. So the the argument of that premise is the world isn't as it seems and you're actually not special at all. There is nothing important or even real about your world. 
So, what do we need in light of that? We need a counter premise. You actually are special. You actually are a hero. And so, when you look at Neo, Neo embodies what we all want to be true about the world, but the the first premise embodies what we are afraid is actually true.、Hmm. And so, I think that's why people connect with this movie so much. Is because we are so terrified that we aren't special, and we are so scared that this world is not as good as it seems. But the the hope, the the desire, is that well, you know, even though I'm afraid this world isn't special, the hope is that I actually am. I actually mean something. I actually have value to this world. I can actually change things. And so Neo represents that hope and change. And I think that's what sci-fi does best: is it creates these fantastic, just adventuresome worlds, and yet it connects to these core truths about humanity: their fears, their hopes, and desires. And the Matrix just works because it it ties into those core things about humans so deeply. And I, I think the other part of it is that it puts the fear right up in your face. But it, it, in a certain sense, it barely says anything about the hope.、Mm. Like, like the fear is there the entire time, but the hope is yes, it's shown in Neo being the one. But they never say like, but you also hope to be the one. Audience, like, like that's almost something you have to come to a realization on your own. So I agree with everything you're saying, and I think the struggle for me then in like evaluating the movie was going back to the script by the Wachowskis because I think we can both agree. That there are areas in this script where, the, especially the dialogue, is like laughably bad, and it just happens to be that the performers are so earnest and they take it so seriously that you kind of just forget about it after a while. But so much of this dialogue is like eye-rollingly, you know, when Trinity confesses her love to Neo at the end of the movie, it is—I mean—they rip it out of like the ending of Beauty and the Beast. It's—it's it's like the、yeah. same, <laughs> the same dialogue. And I think my struggle is. Does that perfect balance that I talked about of the simplistic story arc and the incredibly detailed world around it was that intentional, or did they accidentally hit on that? Because when you look at the other elements of the script, it doesn't seem like necessarily that they have a complete hold on on what needs to be done and what needs to be said. But then you look at other elements, and it's like, oh, this is a perfectly structured movie. You get to the forty-minute mark before they finally explain to Keanu Reeves what's going on, and he's already taken the pill and everything else. But it's not until forty minutes in that Morpheus takes him into the simulation and explains: "This is the real world. This is the fake world. Here's what the Matrix is. Here's what the Matrix has been doing. These are how the machines took over." And I think that they really walk you right up to that line of almost maddening. Lack of information because you've seen these really inexplicable things and you're like, God bless it. Are they ever gonna like explain what's going on? I'm starting to get frustrated. And then right at that point, they're like, Okay, we know you need a break. We're finally gonna explain what's going on. So this script is interesting to me, Brad, because it is such a combination of perfectly executed plotting, perfectly executed world building. But then they kind of drop the ball on the dialogue. They kind of drop the ball on. How simplistic, like the overall story is. So I, I don't know. Where do you stand on how this movie is put together from a story standpoint? Well, I think that the the waiting period for figuring out what the Matrix is fits because your main character, you know, Neo, 
is somebody who has been searching, you know, the way they represent it, probably for like a decade or so. He like feels like he knows that the Matrix is real. There's something about it that's weird, but he doesn't know what it is. And so I like the fact that they wait so long to explain it because in the world of the movie of the Matrix and in, in the Matrix world, Keanu Reeves has been spending 10 years trying to figure this out. But we as the audience have been sitting with him for like five minutes. And so I think that that waiting period helps simulate for the audience how Neo is feeling, that he has been searching for this answer for a long time. So like you said, at the 40-minute mark, we're sitting there with him at the edge of our seats, like, okay, we're finally going to find out what this is. I think that the dialogue parts of this movie, they're just simply bad. Uh, If there's anything that I struggle with this movie story-wise, it's the idea of Trinity falling in love with Neo so quickly. You know, we've talked about this before with, like, rom-coms, that, like, one of the big problems with rom-coms is that people fall in love over three or four days. And I remember when we talked about when Harry met Sally, one of the things I love about that movie is that there are time hops. Like, they jump four or five years in the future, and you see them interacting with each other. And it's just believable to me that through these interactions over a decade, Harry and Sally could fall in love. And so I think you fall into the opposite side of that equation here in The Matrix, where you're like, Sure, like love is blind and, you know, you can fall in love with the drop of a hat, I guess. But Trinity, you know, Carrie Ann Moss just is such a wooden actress. The The way she falls in love with him just doesn't feel real. Mm. And, and like her woodenness serves her really well when she's being mysterious at the start of the movie. And when they're in the car, Trinity is like sucking this, you know, uh, robot out of his belly that woodenness like fits there. She's mysterious. She's cold. She's cunning and calculating. But when she's trying to be in love, doesn't work, bro. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't work at all. Well, hey, I think we're having a really great conversation about this movie so far. I'm excited to see where we go in the second half, but I think we need to take a break, Brad. What do you say we try this Joseph Magnus bourbon? I am so excited, man. Let's get to it. So today we are drinking Joseph Magnus Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Before we go any further, I want to say thank you because this was a sample from our friends Bourbon and Stuff. They have been providing a significant amount of our whiskeys for season four here. And we just want to say once again, thank you to Bourbon and Stuff. Go give them a follow on Instagram. But Brad, we have a task in front of us, and that is to drink this whiskey. This is actually the second whiskey we've had from the Joseph Magnus Company. Last season, we drank the Murray Hill Club, which was also a sample from Bourbon and Stuff. We were not huge, huge fans of that whiskey, especially at the price point, because I think that was $100 a bottle. This one is also pretty pricey, Brad. And just like the Murray Hill Club, this one is also sourced whiskey. Now, if you look online uh, and try to find like the mash bill is undisclosed, the age is undisclosed, and then it says it comes from an undisclosed distillery in Indiana. So, hmm, 
I wonder where this is coming from, Brad. This is MGP product. Nope, it's undisclosed. Yeah, undisclosed. You you don't know that. (laughs) That's true. That's true. All right, so this (laughs) is undisclosed sourced whiskey. It comes in at 100 proof, but other than that, we don't know a lot about it. And the Magnus company is essentially relying on you to trust their blending techniques. And with this product, they're also relying on you to trust their finishing techniques. Because unlike Murray Hill, this one is actually finished in different kinds of sherry and cognac casks. So it's aged in Pedro Jimenez sherry casks, it's aged in Oloroso sherry casks, and then it's also aged in cognac casks and all blended together. Brad, I'm really excited to try this. We know we like a good sherry finished whiskey on this podcast. So I'm wondering if this is going to have kind of shades of Irish whiskey, which is often, you know, finished in sherry casks. We have it poured out in front of us, Brad. This is a hundred proof whiskey. I'm wondering what are you picking up on the nose? Bob, I just feel like this is a decadent whiskey. I'm getting like rich caramel, orange. There's like a whole swath of peanut butter near the end. I just feel like this is a really complex, interesting nose. There's some dried fruits going on here. I almost feel like there's a little bit of like, I don't know, kind of like a leathery Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. note going on here. Um, It's a really fascinating, complex nose. I really like it a lot. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. Yeah, Brad, complex is a really good description for this nose. I'm picking up things I've never picked up on a whiskey before, and they're just really interesting wisps of things that make you recall other things you've tried before or smelled before. So the first thing I got on this was bubble gum, like double bubble chewing gum. And then after a minute, it had this interesting note that it wasn't quite oak. It wasn't quite wood. It smelled like when you're at the grocery store and you kind of open up a new paper bag. There's like this this really interesting kind of paper pulpy smell to it. It had some sawdust on it. Eventually, like you, you got the oak. It had some caramel on it. It's all over the place, Brad, but in a really good way. You know, it settles into those notes of vanilla. I got some cayenne pepper on this. I think that leathery note that you're picking up, it almost came across to me a little bit like latex, like a balloon almost kind of smell. It's really interesting. And I I know that some of these notes that I'm describing sound unpleasant, like paper bag and latex. But in the course of nosing this, I I think it all really works together to create this interesting, deep, complex nose. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the nose, Brad. I like that you said in the course of nosing this, like almost like JFK, like in the course of mankind, (laughs) no one has nosed a whiskey quite like this before. With as much latex as this. Bob, when I give this a taste, I I get that orange, I get that caramel, but I'm finishing with all sorts of baking spices. For the first time, I genuinely feel like I have tasted leather on a whiskey. It just has all of these fascinating notes going on that I think it gets by finishing in, I don't know, what is it, like 10, 12 different barrels, I think. (laughs) It is a phenomenal, phenomenal taste. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I think oak and leather are pretty predominant here on the palate. If there is one thing that I want to ding it for, Brad, it's kind of thin and it still coats the tongue really well, but it just doesn't feel like it has the amount of chew, I guess, that it should have for being as robust and complex as it was on the nose. I got a lot of vanilla. I got some clove on this as well, but the thinness kind of bummed me out. It's still really pleasant, but I think I'm just going to give it a seven and a half on the taste. Yeah, I, I think I'm right there with you. And the the lack of viscosity is disappointing. Like this, I guess I'll say this, it has barrel proof flavors and complexity, 
without the barrel proof marking. Like it doesn't have enough oomph to it that I'm really hoping for, which I guess honestly probably makes it a better whiskey yeah. for people who are looking for complexity without that burn. So I maybe I'm actually saying that this is a positive thing, but I'm with you, Bob. I want it to be nice and thick and almost like syrupy, but uh, it's not. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing for most people. I, I wish it had a little more. And for me, that that kind of comes out on the finish. Um, the finish just feels short mm-hmm. compared to other whiskeys with this much complexity and flavor. Um, there's a little hint of ethanol there, probably one of the only like negative tasting marks I'll give it. Um, but it still has bits of spice and leather mixed with like the new thing I'm getting on the finish is a little bit of mintiness mm-hmm. that I, I'm really enjoying, but it does come down a notch. I'll give it a seven and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm just going to give it a seven on the finish. It has a nice chest burn on the way down, but it's still really thin. What's left behind on your palate, you're right, Brad, there is some mintiness there. It really goes oaky on the finish. And I think in my mind, I'm kind of comparing this to like a Henry McKenna because that's 100 proof. And I think that one is just so much uh, richer and sweeter and thicker that the finish on that one kind of stays in the bourbony realm. I think this one... It almost has more of a rye type finish to me in that it leans so spicy, which is totally okay. But coupled with how thin it is, it was a little bit of a step down. So I'm just going to give it a seven on the finish. And that takes us to balance, which is where we consider nose, taste and finish all put together. I think this is a really well-balanced whiskey, Brad. Even if it is a little bit thin, the flavors are super complex. I think that it has a lot going for it. I'd be interested to try this at barrel strength, to be honest with you, because I think that might kind of complete the picture that we're we're looking for it as it kind of paints here. I'm going to give it an eight on the balance. Where are you landing on balance? I think for me on balance, the I other than the finish being a little bit short and, you know, lacking a little bit of that thickness that I hoped for, I think this is a phenomenally balanced whiskey that when you are working with all these different finished barrels and I just I'm really impressed with this whiskey. I think that the complexity and flavors that you get are bar none. I, I've not had many whiskeys with this much flavor. Uh, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on balance. So if you want to just take our tasting notes, what we think of what's in the bottle, you can consider the four categories we've just gone through. I would be coming out to a 31 out of 40 at this point. But we have a fifth category, which is value. And Brad, this is where I think things get interesting for this bottle, because as with the Murray Hill, this is a pretty pricey bottle of whiskey. Now, I know they're blending it. I know they're sourcing it. I know they're finishing it themselves, which is all great. And I appreciate it. And I understand that that's going to, you know, result in a markup of some sort. However, in the state of Ohio, Joseph Magnus sells for $85.99. This is an $86 bottle of whiskey. This is on the level of something like a Booker's in terms of how much you're going to spend. And as much as I like this, Brad, if I am going to spend... $86 on a whiskey, especially a whiskey that is called a straight bourbon whiskey. So, you know, it's not we're not talking about scotch. We're not talking about blended whiskey here. If I'm going to spend $86 on a bourbon, I want it to be barrel proof. And that just might be my own personal bias and prejudice. But spending $86 on a hundred proof whiskey just doesn't quite do it for me if I'm being 100 percent honest. And if you gave me the option of this or a Booker's. I actually like the profile here, and I like the depth and complexity almost as much as I like Booker's. I'm going to take the Booker's at this price point. 
So, man, I think I'm just going to come out to a five out of 10 on value here, Brad. It's just a little too pricey for me. Yeah. See, once again, Bob, I I think that you're looking too much to other whiskeys to to give your value score. Mm. For me, I just think that this is a brilliant tasting whiskey. It's phenomenal in its flavors. There's only a few little detracting points from it. And $80 is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I've railed against other whiskeys that come out to this price point. But for what you're getting here, I think it's a decent value. It's not, you know, out of this world on value. But I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on value. I I think it is a really good whiskey that is worth buying a bottle of. All right. Now, I I don't mean to nitpick here. It's $86. (laughs) And... Brad, uh, just knowing that I went out to the store and bought a few bottles for us this week of whiskeys to try later on, I picked up a bottle off the shelf that was $79.99. And when Ohio adds its its sales tax onto it, and then I think maybe the county I bought it in added tax onto it, that $79 bottle of whiskey became an $87 bottle of whiskey. I don't usually make us consider taxes and other things in the price and in our value scores, but Brad, you're not walking out of the liquor store with this for less than like $94. And I just I don't know if ninety four dollars is an amount that I would want to spend on this. Would you still give it an eight out of ten? Well, based on the fact that we've never once considered taxes before, <laughs> I'm going to stick with the eighty five dollar price price point, eighty six dollars. All right, and uh, keep my score where it is. Okay, I'm just making sure. <laughs> All right, so I am coming out to a thirty six out of fifty. This is a darn good whiskey, and I would highly recommend, especially if you find it at a bar, just to try a dram of it. I actually would also recommend picking up a bottle if you're so inclined. Just beware that it's it is on the pricey side. Even at ninety four dollars, Bob, after you add taxes and stuff in. <laughs> Shut up, dude. What's your what's your final score? Forty one point five. Wow. Uh, I think okay. this is an exceptional whiskey um, that lacks a little bit on the finish, but you you don't get much better than this, Bob. Uh, it's a really really good whiskey. All right, so we're coming out to a seventy seven and a half out of a hundred or a thirty eight point seven five out of 50. This is a darn good whiskey. We both recommend. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about The Matrix? Well, if anything we're talking about is even real, Bob. Ooh. Uh, that's the real question. There it is. <laughs> Let's get to it. That was Joseph Magnus Bourbon, a whiskey that we both really, really liked. We're getting back into talking about The Matrix. And Brad, I have been informed that you have a Brad G. Award to give out for this movie. Oh, do I? Bob, I, as I was watching The Matrix, there's one specific scene that kind of stood out to me that deserves an award. And it's a scene when uh, Neo gets the phone and Morpheus is guiding him through the office building. Mm-hmm. And that that scene alone gives it the award, the Brad G Award for most vague directions ever given in a movie. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne is just like, get up out of your thing, go into the other cubicle. And I'm like, all right, that's pretty that's pretty specific. Yeah, go into the cubicle right across from me. Got it. Then he's like, just go to the end of the hall into an office. And I'm like, 
this is a massive. Which one? Like, yeah. Yeah. Which one are we talking about? And then he's just like, just climb up onto the roof and you'll be saved. Click. And you're like, dude, give better directions. <laughs> and I think it's little points like that where like it didn't have a master scriptwriter at the helm. But in the end, I, I don't care. I just I still love this movie, yeah. despite uh, Morpheus's lack of direction giving prowess. You know, and I have little nitpicks, too. As I was watching the movie, you know, the scene where right after that, where they haul Neo in for interrogation. And then all of a sudden, Agent Smith is like, how can you talk if you don't have a mouth? <laughs> and then yeah, Neo's dude. mouth like so shut. It's I mean, it's really effective, creepy body horror stuff. But also they never come back to that again. And Agent Smith has these kind of mystical powers to manipulate his environment. And you kind of get hints at that later on in the movie when Neo encounters that kid at the Oracle's house that's like bending spoons and teaches Neo how to bend spoons. But really, the ability to manipulate your environment in that way never comes back in terms of Agent Smith. Like if he can sew Neo's mouth shut just by looking at him, you'd think that he would maybe like try to employ that a little bit in his final showdown instead of just like, I'm going to punch you a lot. Do you know what I mean? you just you just don't you didn't pay any attention to the movie, did you? He can't do that because Neo's not jacked into the Matrix anymore. He's broadcasting in from the ship. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's not connected in the same way. See? Uh, okay, so you can't. <laughs> so they're they're incapable of manipulating Neo when he's directly plugged in from the ship. Yes, or or Trinity, or you know anybody else who's coming in from the ship. But they can still shoot them. Oh and, yeah, and punch them a bunch. Yes, hundred okay. percent. Yeah, wouldn't that, have much of a movie if you couldn't. I was going to say that makes no sense, <laughs> but uh, for plot reasons, we're going to go with it. So, so the movie can happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, Bob, you brought up one of my favorite scenes, uh, which is the interrogation room, and that's not because that scene is actually good. Like, like you said, there's some good body horror there, but but I remember watching this movie on cable television once. And it has the literal best example of cable television censoring that I've ever seen in my life. He So when Neo tells uh, Agent Smith, he goes, how about I give you the bird or the uh, the finger and I and you give me my phone call in the in the cable version? He flips. He gives him the you know, the bird. But they they like they literally CGI get rid of his middle finger. So he's just like giving him a fist. <laughs> <laughs> and so they CGI get rid of his his finger. So he's just like giving him a fist of like, 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 oh, why you? But then they also make him say, and it's really jarring. He's like, how about I give you the flipper and you give me my phone call? <laughs> and that has just always stood out to me as the best uh, example of censoring on cable television that they got rid of the word the finger and changed it to the flipper. I remember I watched uh, Do the Right Thing on cable once, and they replaced all the MFs with Mama Jamma, and that was Mama Jamma. That was that was perhaps the funniest example of that because <laughs> when you can imagine someone getting so miffed about being called a Mama Jamma that they burn down a pizza place. It's like you yeah, know. There, there's a lot of Mama Jammas <laughs> in Do the Right Thing. <laughs> all right, Brad. I think maybe it's time for us to just go ahead and give this our final scores. I love this movie. I watched it probably a year ago. I hadn't seen it in years and years. And I was blown away at how well it holds up and how perfectly 
uh, paced and formatted, I guess is the word I would use, that sort of patience that they exhibit before they give you the big reveal of what the Matrix is, I think is so expertly timed. And they and they kind of whet your appetite throughout that first 40 minutes. The very opening scene where those you know policemen are going in to try to capture Trinity, you think she's the bad guy, right? Like you see a bunch of cops roll up and swarm outside of a building with a, like a SWAT team and they go in and this person is sitting menacingly wearing all black and then she gets up and kills a bunch of them. You're like, oh, this is the bad guy. Nope, that's absolutely not the bad guy. And as soon as you start to realize, I think I'm supposed to be following this person. I think this is the good guy. Then they start running across the rooftops. And it's this cool homage to the beginning of the movie Vertigo. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Hitchcock. Cool. And then all of a sudden she jumps like 48 feet in the air and leaps from building to building. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in this movie? This does not make sense. And then a a, a cop comes in the frame and goes, that's impossible. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is impossible. (laughs) And so throughout the beginning of the movie, you're like, why is his mouth getting sewed shut? I don't understand what's going on. And they finally give it to you. And it's such a huge release of this tension that's been building. I just love the way this movie is laid out. I don't think it's perfect. I think some of the dialogue's bad. I think Keanu Reeves actually works pretty well in this movie because he's such a wooden actor. But by the very end of the movie where he's having these like insane revelations about I have to go back in, I have to save Morpheus. I think that's where his limitations as an actor kind of come out. So there's little things in this movie that don't hold up, but it is just it's so cool to continue to be able to watch this movie 20 years later and not be embarrassed by the special effects and have the philosophy kind of hold up after a while. And when, you know, Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus and drops that whole thing about human beings being a virus and not a mammal, I'm like, oh, he makes good points. You know, like there's so much to applaud in this movie. I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten, Brad. Bob, I, I've been sitting here and I'm waffling between like a nine and a half and a 10 out of 10. And the thing is that I think the key thing to say is that any movie we give a 10 out of 10 to has flaws, mm-hmm. right? Like like there's no such thing as a perfect movie. But this movie is just up there for me. And I think the thing that puts it to a 10 out of 10 for me is just the fact that I can just watch it. And I am still to this day as a 30 year old utterly enthralled by what's happening on the screen for about 90 to 95 percent of the film like there's barely any fat on this movie which is crazy because the movie's like two hours and 20 minutes long but uh, there's nothing in it that loses my attention i feel like i'm on the edge of my seat the entire time Uh, for me i just love this movie and while recognizing there are some serious flaws if i had to rank all the movies that i've given a 10 out of 10 the matrix might not be near the top but I'm still going to give it a 10 out of 10. I love it, man. We're coming out to a 9.75 out of 10, but we want to know what you think. Does the Matrix hold up? What parts of it work for you? What parts of it doesn't? Are you a huge Carrie Ann Moss fan and you want to call in and defend her you know, vociferously? Please do. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can call us on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Next week, we are taking a turn into the world of the musical, and we're going to be looking at the 2012 film Les Miserables. So we'll see you next week for that one. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 